that is not the title of my sermon, but it's my fault because I didn't give the title, actually. I've called this, it's too little a thing. As we get started, um, you'll hear me talk a lot about servant songs in Isaiah. And I think it is really important that we start with a little bit of context to these servant songs. First, a little overview of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah provided a vision of freedom for God's people who were captive. That vision involved both an immediate and remote fulfillment, or, or maybe better said, a lesser and greater fulfillment. In chapters 40 through 48, that prominent scene is the fall of Babylon, Israel's enemy, and God's deliverance of his people out of the Babylonian captivity through his servant Cyrus, the Persian monarch. Jehovah's work in commissioning and sending Cyrus to free his people is one of the great unfulfilled prophecies or great fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. And it stands as a testament to God's power and sovereignty among the nations of the world. But the latter part of Isaiah focuses on a greater deliverance and a more profound deliverer. Isaiah sets forth the character and the mission of God's divine servant, Israel's Messiah. God will redeem his people through the work and faithfulness of this servant. What is beautiful about this, though, is that he stands in contrast to all the previous servants of God. Even the nation of Israel itself, who had failed God at every turn. The contrast is that this servant will not fail to complete his mission. There used to be a TV show a long time ago called What's My Line? You had to figure out who that mystery person is. Well, I guess, I guess this is Isaiah's approach. Um, the servant's identity was not known. He was described but had indeed not come and would not come for more than 700 years. But through him, the Holy One of Israel is going to achieve the hope, grace, and restoration that was promised in the first 39 chapters through this mystery servant. There are four servant songs of Isaiah. They give us a beautiful and full picture of the ministry of the servant. You know Isaiah 53 most intimately. But it is really the culmination of the three servant songs which have come before. I'm not going to preach those three today. Only one. But I think it is important for you to know them. It is important for us to recognize them and encourage you to go back to this deep well of these four, song, of these four servant songs songs. In Isaiah 42, the servant is spirit-filled. 
this servant song talks a lot about justice. He will bring justice not just to Israel, but to the nations. And there is a picture of ruling with perfect justice. How our hearts yearn for perfect justice, don't they? In Isaiah 49, which is the servant song that I will do today, that I will preach on today, the servant is a prophet. In Isaiah 50, the servant is obedient. His mouth is instructed by God. His ears are attentive to God's teaching. And there is no rebellion in him. The servant is all that Israel is not. He perfectly obeys the Holy One of Israel. In Psalm 49, you will begin to get the glimpse of rejection of the servant. But in Psalm 50, the servant is rejected and even physically assaulted. And in Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant is a substitute. Salvation will be brought about by the servant's substitutionary suffering and death. So now with that context, please hear God's word. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. In this first part of this chapter, there's a very interesting picture of weapons. So when you first read this picture of weapons, you immediately think of a conqueror 
the weapons that are shown are God's sharp sword and his hidden polished arrow. So when you first read about weapons, you immediately jump to war. That's not what these weapons are. Let's look more closely at this. The servant himself speaks, and he calls on those faraway coastlands, which are the image of the unbelieving world, the rest of the world, the Gentiles. My friends, that's you and, you and I. He calls on those faraway coastlands to pay attention to what he's saying. A universal message to the entire world. But then notice that the Lord called and predestined him to this mission even from the womb of his mother. And then the servant comes with power to deliver, and he shows these weapons by which he will conquer. The first one is his mouth. Made my mouth like a sharp sword. The word mouth signifies his words of truth and prophecy. God will give his servant words to speak. These words will into subjection. Well, let's look at Jesus for a moment here. When Jesus spoke about his teaching, he consistently characterized him as not his own words, but the words the Father had given him to speak. John 12, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. His words called men to faith and obedience. And the edge of that sword, his words, would cut the hearts of men. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. But now we have a somewhat strange part of this passage. The servant is hidden. In his quiver he has hidden me. The Messiah is pictured like an arrow hidden in a quiver to be pulled out at just the right time when it will be sent to its target. I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a deep fan of, of Tolkien. And when I think of this, I think of Legolas whipping those arrows out of his quiver and sending them to where they need to go. That is what this is a picture of, God's weapon revealed at just the right time. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. In Revelation 6, 2, one riding on a white horse with a bow in his hand went out conquering and to conquer. This is the mystery of the gospel. It denoted that which was not fully known until the time was made right. 
Jesus, even in his own ministry, said to his mother, woman, my time has not yet come. In Ephesians 3, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. When that mystery was revealed, it was hard for the Jews and the Jewish believers to even take that the Gentiles would be partakers of the gospel. Now look at verse 3. In verse 3, the one speaking is identified as my servant Israel. You do have to understand that in the earlier portions of Isaiah, God literally removes that name from the nation because of their failure to keep his covenant. So it's not necessarily a reference to the nation of Israel, but rather to Christ as the one who will prevail. That name, Israel, was first given to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel. And then it later was referred to, it later referred to the nation that came from Jacob. But the word means one who struggles and prevails. Both Jacob and the nation of Israel had failed to prevail. They had failed to fulfill the mission from God. But this servant who struggles will be victorious and God will be glorified. So now we get to that mission. In, in verses 4 through 7, the mission of the servant is enlarged. I, I deeply appreciate the way God enlarges that mission. First of all, the first part of his mission is to call the nation of Israel back to him. You would think that that mission is a huge mission. After all, the nation of Israel today does not fully know him and in fact rejects him. But the Lord says in verse 6, this is God speaking, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul applied these words to Christ and to his work as Christ's apostles to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, I love the sarcasm of Paul, um, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, 
I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That is confirmation from no less than the Apostle Paul that Isaiah is speaking of Jesus as the servant and not the nation of Israel. This verse in, in chapter 4, where the, in verse 4, where the servant expresses disappointment and a sense of failure was hard for me to wrestle with. I have labored in vain, he says. This is the servant speaking in bringing back Jacob to Jehovah. But notice that he is confident that God has not removed his reward and God will be his strength. His labor does recover a remnant of Israel, the preserved ones. But God has an even larger mission. He is to be a light to the Gentiles and provide salvation to the ends of the earth. It is no wonder that in verse 1, the servant wanted the coastlands, the gentle, Gentile nations, to listen to what he had to say. In Ephesians two, verse, uh, chapter 2, we are reminded of this. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought nigh or brought near by the blood of Christ. This song tells us, though, that the servant would not be well received. Although the servant has such a noble mission of enlightenment and salvation and is the Holy One of Israel, God points out that he will not be well received. Those to whom he is sent will despise him, they will abhor him, and they will count him as of little worth. We know this about our Lord. John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But in the end, but in the end, all will worship the servant. Kings will see and arise. Princes also shall worship. There will be a complete reversal when even kings and princes among men will come and worship him. He will triumph over all obstacles. But wait, how will that happen? Well, verse 7 tells us that it will be because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. The servant will prevail through the power of the one who he serves. In the day when God provides salvation to his people, he will come to the aid of his servant. God will preserve that servant. He will guard his life from danger until the appointed hour comes. How often did Satan 
tried to disrupt God's plan. It started when he was very, very young, barely born, but the mission of the servant was completely in the hands of God the Father, and the Father did not abandon him. This is where that picture of being hidden in his quiver, protected, is so beautiful with our Lord's mission. And then he was raised from death. When God raised Jesus from the grave, it was a clear proclamation that he had not abandoned his servant as the people had done, but he had placed him as the only path, the only way of salvation. In Acts 4, Peter told the crowd around them that the man he had just healed of his lameness was not healed through Peter's power. He said, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is his mission. But you and I, like Paul, are part of the servant's mission. Do we, like the servant, become discouraged? I have no doubt. In the words of the servant, I have labored in vain I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. I feel like that sometimes. Maybe you do too. You share the gospel with people. You share the truth. And they don't respond. So we get discouraged. We get discouraged in this mission and in this kingdom that he's called us to. But like the servant, we can say, yet surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. God can pick you up, strengthen you, and refresh you. Our hope is in Christ. Our help is in Christ. The power of our message is because of him. His word, his mouth, his sword does that work. Jesus is the servant of the Lord who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ was rejected, but he was vindicated in the end. In Christ's victorious and vindicated service, that gives us encouragement for our path and for our ministry with him. You are my servant, Israel. It was Israel. It is Jesus. And it is in Christ that is the church also. Take heart. The light is shining in the darkness and the darkness has not 
and <coughs> will not overcome it. Pardon me. As I close out, I'd like to pray the words of, our, of a hymn. This is actually a Lutheran hymn I had never heard of before until I read it this last week. It is entitled, Christ Our Human Likeness Sharing. Pray with me. Christ, our human likeness sharing, heaven's love on earth portrayed. Christ, the shepherd, tender, caring, in his death our ransom paid. Christ, the Savior, Christ, the servant, be your life in us displayed. Christ, in every congregation, build your temple stone by stone with your word as firm foundation for a faith matured and grown. Christ the Savior, Christ the servant, make in us your gospel known. Come, O living Christ, renew us. As of old in wind and flame, with the Spirit's power endue us, servants of your saving name. Christ the Savior, Christ the servant, Christ whose kingdom we proclaim.